Welcome to a new series of the Dissidents Podcast with your co-hosts, Jennifer Richmond and Brandy Shuvatinsky. In this series, we explore the radical roots of liberated ethnic studies, how extreme ideology is infiltrating our schools and the aim to indoctrinate instead of educate, and our search for solutions to empower parents, teachers, and students, giving them the tools to embrace inquiry and to express their individuality. So welcome to another series, The Radical Roots of Ethnic Studies of the Dissidents podcast. Today we have Isabella Tabarovsky with myself, Jennifer Richmond, and co-host Brandy Shubatinsky. And for those of you who have been following the podcast, you might have heard us talk about Isabella before. We talked about this podcast, Brandy, when it was you and me right after October 7th, and we were talking about liberated ethnic studies and the response of the Coalition for Liberated Ethnic Studies and their support of Palestine, their support of Hamas in particular. And one of the things that I'd asked you was you know, so much of what we're seeing originated in Soviet Russia, the pro propaganda that we're seeing. And of course, both of us said, well, we know <laughs> the right person to talk to about that. And Isabella, it's just such a pleasure to see you again. Uh, I don't really even know where to start. I think, you know, let me give you a little bit of background on what Brandy and I have been doing and, and then kind of start there. So the Liberated Ethnic Studies movement, the Coalition for Liberated Ethnic Studies really came out very quickly after Hamas attacked at, with a lot of pro-Hamas propaganda, and then also just conflating terrorism with resistance. And I know that that's not a new trend. It feels like a new trend for some of us who aren't familiar like you are. But I guess really, if we could just back up, Isabella, and you, I know you've written several pieces. We we linked to a couple of your pieces recently with regard to Soviet propaganda and how we're seeing it show up today. But if we could just start there with what you're seeing and, and, and give us the origin for those of us who don't really have that historical background of the language that's being used today. Well, first of all, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for uh, for thinking of me and of my research. Well, gosh, you know, where to start? So much uh, to say there, but why don't I say, you know, uh, I'll address the one thing that you mentioned is the equation between terrorism and resistance. I mean, you know, you gotta understand like the, the last few years, ever since I started researching this, I just feel like I want to, you know, bang my head on the wall every day because I, I used to think that I left all this stuff behind. You know, we emigrated from the Soviet Union in we left in 1989. We got to this country in 1990 and never looked back. I thought that all the anti-Semitic stuff we had seen there was gone forever. But it turns out that it's sort of, a, you know, what was kind of germinating here. And to see it all back um, center stage is just uh, devastating. But, you know, the Soviets um, are the ones that produced a lot of the anti-Zionist rhetoric and anti-Israel rhetoric that we're hearing today from the left. Uh, and I'm talking about the kind of cliches and slogans uh, that are emanating from those quarters. You know, Zionism is racism and Zionism is fascism and Israel is a settler colonial state and Israel is an apartheid state. You know, it's the, the way like all of these kind of snappy little phrases that you can put on a placard and take to a demonstration with you. And so, you know, and it's a kind of a thing that once you say it, it's like a code word. No discussion is possible. No discussion is necessary. It's a signal. You know, your audience knows where you stand. It knows what you mean. Uh, and so, yeah, there's no more conversation to be had. But this terrorism as resistance thing, so, so all of it kind of comes to the fore without going too deep into the history. But the specific form, the specific rhetoric that we're encountering today is born in the USSR essentially in 1967. Soviets were always anti-Zionist, but it's after 1967 that we see this specific rhetoric appear. And it's when they also begin to export it. Uh, they begin to transmit it uh, to uh, and try to inculcate it among friendly audiences abroad, among the left, the global left, among the developing world, uh, wherever they could find allies. And so terrorism as resistance, they would talk about uh, Palestinian terrorist groups, PFOP, PLO, you know, groups that were, con 
you know, carrying out hardcore, horrible attacks against Israelis. So they would refer to them as partisans to begin with. Partisans meaning uh, it's a reference to World War II. So meaning that, and, and it's, you know, in Soviet kind of um, public uh, collective memory, you mentioned the partisans, You it, it brings up a whole like spectrum of collective memories, you know, the fight against the Nazis, you know, we're the good guys, the partisans are the good guys. And who are the partisans? The partisans are like guerrillas, you know, they're, they're fighting a much bigger and stronger, stronger and better armed and better trained enemy. Who's the enemies? The Nazis, right? So they would refer to Palestinians in that way in order, because that's a code word, in order to make the audience think, wow, okay, these are the good guys and who are they fighting? They're, they're fighting the Israelis and the Israelis are the Nazis. And so this is kind of what uh, what we're seeing them do today. You know, when you say resistance, it may not necessarily have the direct reference to, to World War II and the fight against the Nazis, but it's the same idea. These are the good guys. They're fighting in the current paradigm. What's more important is, I guess, the, I don't know, the oppressive capitalist state, the imperialist state uh, with its colonial armies. And so this is supposedly what this, these groups are resisting. No, um, hi, Isabella. Hey, Jen. It's it's uh, actually really exciting for me to be here talking to you about this because of many reasons, <laughs> because I respect your expertise and, and all of the knowledge you bring, but also because um, reg specifically regarding ethnic studies, I think that some of the first people in the United States and California that kind of um, raised their eyebrows when they started hearing the rhetoric out of um, the critical and liberated ethnic studies groups, you know, they're kind of like the hairs on the back of their necks started standing up and their spidey senses were tingling. Can you talk a bit about why that may have been? So what are some of the common terminologies, ideologies, phrases that made, you know, made Americans that, that have come, you know, to the United States from the former Soviet Union a kind of a step ahead of many other Americans regarding the dangers that were coming through um, liberated ethnic studies? Well, look, the liberated ethnic studies, is, I, I'm not as familiar with the language that they use in general, but the language that they use uh, specifically with regards to Jews and to Israel, that's something that I really understand. I mean, I think that probably the, the entire framework of framing um, kind of some groups as being inherently virtuous and others inherently oppressive based on their on the color of their skin. Uh, that kind of framework, you know, as today so many people are talking about this framework being oppressive versus oppressed, it's something that we in the USSR certainly, um, it's something that really um, jumped out at a lot of us uh, early on because the truth is there is nothing new about this uh, dichotomy. What's, well, one thing is new. What's new is that it takes, uh, it builds that dichotomy based on the color of the person's skin. So attaching virtue to the color of the skin. But the fact is that, you know, the revolutionary left has always looked at the world through this kind of lens of dichotomy. You know, you go back to Bolshevism, you know, 1917, it's the same thing, you know, it's two groups that are positioned one against the other. So it's the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie, right? It's the working class versus the capitalist oppressor class. It's the, then you go further, it's the Soviet Union versus the, and, and the socialist camp versus the evil and oppressive uh, imperialist slash capitalist slash colonialist uh, West. So the dichotomy is always there, has always been there. It's just that I think what, what's striking though for all of us is like I was saying about anti-Semitism that comes from the left, you know, is to see it um, here in America and to for people to be trying to introduce this at such an early level, to really indoctrinate children at such an early age with this idea. I mean, that's really, uh, it's really dangerous, you know, and another thing that we also, we've seen in the USSR, I mean, it, the dichotomies there weren't built on um, the color of the skin, but you did have this idea uh, of assigning sort of um, 
you know, um, like, for example, admitting people to school based on their ethnicity, based on where they, they come from. So they, this idea of equity that's become so popular these days, I mean, we've seen it, we've lived it, you know, Jews in particular were on the end of, you know, being pushed uh, away and pushed aside uh, in favor of other ethnic groups, you know, and when you are on the receiving end of that, you know, you really feel very sharply the uh, just how unfair it is that you may have done better on entrance exams to college, or you may have done better on this or that test, but you will not be accepted because you are Jewish or because you are, you know, there were other groups that they discriminated against, groups that they felt were disloyal, you know, like there was, there were Germans who lived inside Russia, there were Armenians, you know, groups that had connections to out, other groups outside the USSR, they viewed them with suspicion. And so, so you sit there, especially as a child, frankly, you know, it's very hard for you as a child to really understand that. So it's like, how is it? I did really well on this test and yet I'm not the one who's being accepted. Uh, so it's a very, very, it's not only not equitable, but it's also ultimately, I think it ruins, um, it ruins everything for everyone because when you choose people not on the basis of their hard work or their talent or their gifts but on the basis of characteristics that they don't have control over you know you don't end up with the best society in the end i mean i think that explains very well the the fight against merit that the, instead of instead of um opportunities being there based on talent and 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 hard work um, they're based on who some other group judges is deserving of that. Right. Um, exactly. And, and I mean, that sounds that we we've spoken about this before. M many people have spoken about about um, how social vengeance is kind of couched in terms of social justice, when in fact it just seems to be more more vengeful and getting back at individuals or groups that, that certain people think deserve to be punished for whether it's you know the color of their skin or their racial background or or country yeah. of origin um that seems to be happening but the end kind of question i guess is how does it end what's the point what's the goal what do you what do you think is the ultimate goal of of the people that are indoctrinating kids with this um ideology in, in schools in k-12 schools well, look, that's a really good question. I think it's something that I struggle with a lot. I mean, I, you know, the thing that's also hard to understand here a little bit is who are the they, right? Because if you are in the USSR, you know where it comes from, right? It comes from, it's everything is centralized. It's part of a centralized ideology and it comes from Moscow, right? And from, so it kind of descends down the chain. Here, uh, you know, there are people who have described how this ideology, these ideas as they evolved throughout the decades, it's, it's not, we're, we're dealing with something that's been in process for decades. I think now we understand it, right? It, it didn't just appear today. So that, uh, you know, the, what is the phrase? The, the long march through the institutions, right? So, so gradually kind of taking over the institutions and introducing new curricula, and I, I don't know. I mean, it sounds like it's just uh, something that, you know, uh, somehow, uh, you know, I, how, that somehow people agreed that this was something that they want to advance, you know, that the academics perhaps assumed this, these ideas to be, you know, that these ideas became fashionable and so they then began to implement them. Uh, I don't know, what is your take? Uh, you, Brandy and Jennifer, how do you view, you know, who are the actors here? What is what is driving them? Is there some kind of a centralized force or is it completely distributed? How How is it happening? I mean, from from what I see in education, a lot of the, a lot of the ideology that they um, really is coming from a couple of different, just a couple of different higher up institutions. One, um, a lot of teacher unions are pushing ideology that is radical. Um, now, what they get from it, I think, can be researched more and argued. I mean, there's money involved, and there's um, having control over certain systems. And, and I, the K-12 public school system in the United States arguably touches more people 
than any other system or institution on the face of the earth because you know it's 13 years 12 13 years depending if the state requires kindergarten um of kind of a captive audience so there's there's that piece and then there are people that are just very very far leftists politically so whether that's the DSA, you know, Democratic Socialists of America or anybody of the like, the, what is it, the working people or working party, whatever, there is something like that. I'm messing the name up a little bit um, that, again, have to gain power, but that also are kind of true believers in, in far left neo-Marxist ideology. I just still haven't seen them actually um, both verbalize what they see happening if they get their way. I know, I mean, I, I have fears of what that could be, <laughs> of, of if they get their way, what comes next. But I really haven't seen anything other than pipe dreams of some sort of um, equity-based utopia that don't really seem to have a foot in reality. Well, that's, yeah, the utopia, there's some kind of a vision for a society that's not necessarily well articulated, but the left, of course, is given to utopias. And... You know, this is some kind of an updated version, which is probably not that different from, again, the original, the Bolshevik version uh, that, you know, those of us from the USSR are familiar with, you know, and it's always striking that in order to achieve this utopia, uh, some groups of people need to be uh, eliminated, essentially, right? The society needs to be cleansed of some group of groups of people. So in Bolsheviks, in Bolshevik Russia, you know, in that whole former Russian empire territory, it was based on class, essentially. So it would be peasants who did well, who were, you know, who were hardworking and accumulated some wealth. So they had to go. Uh, anybody who was a carryover from the old society, professional classes, or maybe just maybe nobility, you know, they certainly, the nobility certainly had to go, you know, and what does it mean had to go? I mean, not just like some people managed to emigrate, but the vast majority of people ended up in, you know, labor camps or shot or what, or starved to death, what have you. So, you know, there's always, it's always a very violent uh, utopia. And we actually have seen it since October 7th in, um, in how many on the left have, re have reacted to the horrible atrocities perpetrated against Israelis by saying, well, great, this is decolonization, meaning that this is like, this is, and, and saying that, yeah, I mean, decolonization is violent, it will be violent, and we in America need to prepare for it too, but there is a virtue to de decolonization, we have to greet this revolutionary violence. Again, I mean, that's 1917, you know, so it's some kind of a really radical, vision for remaking the society. Um, and that just makes me very, very worried. You know, I want to add something as you were talking, I looked up, I, I forgot the title of the book, which I actually have, have just finished, but um, Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating, uh, and indoctrinating, uh, uh, sorry, just a second, I don't see the full title here, and indoctrinating, how Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating in Generations. So that's by uh, Carol Markovitz and Bethany Mandel. So they they trace, and there are other conservative writers who have traced uh, the way various American institutions, such as teachers' unions uh, and various educational institutions, have taken on some of the values that they picked up from, um, I guess, from the Soviet approaches to education, the Soviet approaches to shaping and molding the next generation. I mean, I find it so, you know, just the thought of it makes me want to, I don't know, I just, it's very hard for me to just accept it, that this is what we have, that somehow we were so blind in the society that we miss this. But, uh, you know, I, I don't doubt the research. The research seems to be solid um, and it's just terrible. It's just terrible. Well, I think one thing too, you know, Brandy and I talk about this a lot. And then Isabella, you know, Wink and I talk about it in the book. I think the damage that's being done as well is by setting people apart as the underclass. What we're doing when we when we you know put the veneer of race on that is, and this is one of the things that Wink and I talk about, like black people are poor, black people are put in these these boxes that don't really reflect reality, but yet are actually creating a reality where, you know, Brandon and I went to this great exhibit the other day, yesterday, of uh, one of the black founders of Philadelphia. And it was so refreshing because it was showing how much he did despite 
what he was faced. Tom, uh, Thomas Horton is it, it was Thomas, right? Brandy. Uh, Fortin. Well, there were Fortin. multiple generations, but it's the Fortin family. The Fortin family. And yet the stories that we are telling by separating out and segregating out are one of that it's completely missing the resilience, the strength, the power. And it's meant to do that. What I'm hearing you say too, I mean, this is a neo-Marxist strategy in and of itself of setting people apart in numerous ways. And what we're doing in America is we're choosing skin color, but then we're 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 victimizing people based on their skin color. And so that's how we're translating this kind of neo-Marxist ideology and this this, like you mentioned, it's this march through through the institutions, but where I still don't really see how, how we how we got there. I mean, how did this march through the institutions make it into the teachers' unions? in the first place. I mean, it just seems like when you look at it the way we're looking at it and the damage that it's doing seems so clear. So I don't know if it's part of it is because of the way it's been prop propagandized. I mean, like you said, like Knight's little cute little phrases here, you know, kind of speak to your heart and, and you don't have to really go much deeper in thinking about it or really analyzing what's going on. Uh, but how we've gotten here is what can, I, I don't have it where it started or or why we've accepted it. Well, in the book, specifically about the teaching aspect of it, uh, so again, Bethany Mandel and Carol Markowitz write about a, 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 a um, I guess the leading teacher training college, I think it's affiliated with Columbia University, where they write about how they in particular had prominent educators who had taken on some of the ideas, who were admirers of the Soviet educational methods and took that on. So, you know, it's something that I, I speak about with caution just because I'm also, I'm myself, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. Um, but so, but I can imagine, you know, so they, and that there are some other um, authors also who have traced some of the really major cultural figures uh, in America, who, for example, traveled to the USSR and were big admirers of the USSR. Now, just travel to the USSR, it's, it's, it's not obviously something that would immediately change you. But there was this whole tradition. I mean, that's something that's important to understand is that there was a tradition. It was like this phenomenon of left-wing intellectuals going on these Potemkin village tours of the Soviet Union. So they would be, it's not that they just traveled and went where they wanted to go and saw what they saw or wanted to see and form their own opinions. You know, and this is actually really well documented that the USSR wanted to bring them in because they were influencers already in their academic institutions, in the media world, you know, they, they formed public opinion or helped shape public opinion. And so they would be invited to come on these tours that were just completely, completely uh, organized for them, you know, they would be separated from real people, except for the real people who were there in order to play a certain role, right, and to talk about how great it is to live in the USSR. And it's just extraordinary to see how these people, whose really only job in life is to be critical of, like, to approach uh, reality with a critical mind, how they would just completely buy everything that was told to them in the USSR. And so they would come back and they would write books and they would write articles praising the worker, the Soviet Union and what a great uh, thing it was, the, the revolution that they, that they, um, that they had there and the post-revolutionary reality and we should do the same, you know? And so I can imagine how after a few of these, right, and we're talking about it's, it's generations, over generations, right, that they would, um, that a certain opinion would form, I guess, among the intelligentsia, that this is what we want, you know, and so they would take the critical stance toward their own society, toward America or toward, you know, the United States, toward uh, Europe, um, and say, well, if only we had what the Soviet Union has. So this is just kind of generally as a zeitgeist, right, that, that's that's created. I think that that contributed to it. And so the, there are probably multiple, multiple influences. But somehow, as we know, uh, the intelligentsia in the West has been oriented, the influential people in intelligentsia have been oriented toward uh, the left, and the USSR for a very long time, for many decades, was the guiding light 
for the left. And so I think in a way, it's actually probably not surprising that they looked for influences from there to import into the United States. I get, you bring up an, an important point and I, uh, multiple, but I want to, I want to focus on one and make sure that people that aren't familiar with the Soviet Union understand what, a, uh, like, I'm going to mispronounce it, pardon me, the Potemkin village is. It really is just a facade. So what would happen is if people from the West came to, it's similar to, I think, what we've seen in San Francisco with cleaning up of the streets as the delegation comes, where wherever the foreigners would be taken would be, you know, a fresh paint on the outside, even if the backside has mold growing on it. The people are coming in and actually playing a role. It, the entire trips were scripted. And I think we're seeing something similar with how our media at least has reported on the war against Hamas, where just whatever rhetoric is coming out, it's been scripted um, from a hospital that wasn't bombed. In fact, it was their parking lot and it was, you know, hit by a terrorist missile, not Israel, but everything coming out and presented is then packaged neatly for a certain group of people in the West and they're just consuming it and then spewing it out like it's full on fact for the rest of the world to to accept, which I think is kind of a where in, in the Soviet Union, what was presented was a pretty facade. What we're seeing presented um, from from Hamas and terror supporters and the rest um, is, oh, we're so downtrodden and terrible. Pity us, pity us. Everything that we do has to be in the name of justice because we're so poor and we're, we're you know, the little guy fighting this big oppressor. Well, that's absolutely right. Uh, and in fact, you know, as you were talking, I thought that, uh, of course, uh, the Soviet Union, but ju just like today, you know, Hamas knows how to use the media to communicate its messages and knows that it can count on positive reception and on uh, lack of questioning, right? Just this kind of naive adoption by naive uh, Westerners. The USSR certainly understood it very well also. You know, now during the Cold War, of course, not all of the media was so receptive. There was plenty of hostile media, um, but there was also plenty of media, you know, I, I know it from my own research. When you look at the media that was put out by left-wing groups, for example, or just groups that were simply sympathizers, sympathizers with the USSR, I mean, they just, they just reflected the Soviet message in, absolutely every way, you know, and one of the things that they would do, you know, there were all these friendship societies, for example, so in every country, and in some countries, there would be multiple branches, you know, like in the UK, I've looked into the operations of some of them, I've looked into the journal that, that was put out by the London branch of the uh, Soviet, uh, uh, British, uh, British Soviet Friendship Society. So one of the things that they would do is they would specifically try to counter what the rest of the mainstream press was saying about the Soviet Union and positioning it as lies and positioning it as provocations. Uh, and they and somehow they they believed that what the Soviet Union said was more true than what their own press in their own democratic countries was putting out, you know. And so again, I think over the decades of that, and the Soviets certainly knew how to manipulate it. They knew it very, very well. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that's uh, there's something about um, our media institutions and I don't know Western public as a whole that makes it some parts of it makes it just kind of willing to consume that without questioning what they're hearing. You know, and and I was also I'll just uh, kind of jump in or um, uh, mention something that I was also thinking about as we were talking about all these uh, these. Uh, political voyages or political pilgrimages, as one author calls them, uh, by the Western left to the USSR. You know, one of the most recent ones that we know about, the kind of the latest, in, you know, right before the USSR fell apart, was one that Bernie Sanders did in, I think, 1988. You know, and some people may have heard about it. I certainly looked into it closely because I think a few years ago, um, some uh, recordings came out of a press conference that he gave after that trip. And the, the New York Times did a little bit of an investigation into where he visited. And, you know, and it and you can see from that investigation that the security services were very much, the party organs, Communist Party organs were very much, 
you know, preparing for uh, for the visit and, you know, planning how, where they're going to direct him and where he can go. And, and you know, and then Bernie comes back um, and gives a press conference in Vermont. And he is just so positive about what he saw in the USSR. Now, 1988 is when I lived in the USSR still. This is a year before the Soviet Union fell apart. Uh, no, it's a year before we left. It's a few years before the Soviet Union fell apart. It's a few years into the perestroika. I remember, you know, he visited Moscow. I was in Moscow at that time. I mean, it was a hungry, angry place. You know, people, it, I mean, it was just, a, there was an air of freedom there, but they, like kind of a, a sense that there is more freedom now. But that's because we were moving away from the socialism that we had before. You know, so there was a feeling that somebody's changing. We're actually moving toward greater freedom, economic freedom. And now it, it was very hard. The path was very hard to be sure. But there was this intoxicating sense of, wow, finally there is change. And Bernie comes back from his trip with his wife and he talks about how, you know, the spirit of essentially like essentially like praising kind of these stale institutions, Soviet institutions that are falling apart, like these you know, palaces of culture where children can learn sports and culture for free and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, by then everything is already rotting. Everything is falling apart. And they saw none of it. You know, they saw it. It somehow fit their own imagination about how the utopia is supposed to work. And they come back and they bring great, you know, good news to America. You know, and for, for me, I mean, you can laugh at it and you can say it's so dumb. And I certainly have thought that, but it also makes me angry because it makes me feel well, it's a lie. You know, he went and he came back and he and it's a lie. You know, either he didn't see it, so he was fooled. You know, or he came back and he lied because this is the message that he wanted to communicate. So this is this is how it works, you know. And somebody like uh, uh, Bernie Sanders at the time, I think he was mayor. You know, it's an influential figure, you know. So this this was the game. This was the game for the Soviets to find influential figures, bring them in somehow, bring them close, treat them to a great trip, uh, you know. And and yeah, you've got a friend. About, I, I'm not familiar with why. Can you give me a little bit of history of why there was such this anti-Zionism in the USSR? I mean, what, what, why did they even focus on that in the first place? Was there a reason behind that? So this is a really great question. Um, so, you know, the Bolsheviks were against Zionism from the beginning uh, for various theoretical and practical reasons. You know, the main reason is that they would say, uh, you know, socialists are internationalists and Zionists are nationalists. So that's one reason uh, they would say that Zionists are trying to take away the Jews from fighting for greater revolution. They just want to kind of sideline them into their little Israel project. This is like 1920s we're talking about, even before the revolution, actually. Um, but but what happens is that in 1967, actually, there is a, you know, there's a Stalin and all that. I'm not going to go through all of that. But but then in 1967, there is a turning point when Israel loses, uh, when Israel wins in the Six-Day War against um, Arab states, which were all Soviet allies. And the Soviets actually trained their militaries and financed their militaries. Um, and when they lose, it creates a crisis inside the Soviet bloc, inside the Soviet Union. And they they don't understand how is it that small Israel won. Uh, and they begin to come up with ideas, you know, but they, they understand though that th this victory was really crucial. They interpreted it as a victory for imperialism in the Middle East. And it's a really crucial region for the Soviets and for everybody else because, you know, the oil and all that. And so they begin to come up with an explanation and the explanation that they come up with is this conspirological explanation that talks about, you know, what is the main ideology of Israel? It's Zionism. Uh, they start to look at America, for example, the United States. They see so many Jews there in key positions and they say, well, look at all the Jews in the United States and they all support Israel. So they're all Zionists. So therefore, you know, so they start to like connect the dots and they start to say, wow, Zionism is everywhere. You know, and our own Soviet Jews 
uh, are also now asking for permission to emigrate. And that means that they're also, that's the Zionist influence and Zionists are trying to undermine us from within. They look at American Jews who are supporting um, Soviet Jews uh, in that campaign for freedom and immigration. And they say, wow, look at that. So the Zionists are everywhere. And essentially, so they, they begin to view Zionists as their one of like their main ideological enemy. They think that Zionists have control in all of the key places and they start to blame everything, all of their failures on Zionists, including you know, their failure to kind of have a normal and peaceful relationship with the United States. They say it's the Zionists are against us. So it becomes this massive, massive, massive propaganda campaign. And they invest, I don't know, I don't know how much money. It's not something that anybody could do, could replicate today, because they it's everything is centrally controlled. They involve their academia, they involve their media, they involve um, their educational institutions. Uh, so they be, to, they inculcate the message inside the country and they also begin to inculcate it outside. So they translate all of their materials into dozens of languages. You know, they work all around the world because they because they feel that Zionists are everywhere and they threaten them. And of course, for those who are familiar with anti-Semitism and how it works, I mean, these are all just kind of traditional anti-Semitic tropes, the idea that Jews control everything, Jews control the media and, and the banking sector and the politics and everything, right? And they're sinister and they, they're against all the good people. So all of these ideas they assign to Zionists. And so their anti-Zionist campaign is very much, it's very much anti-Semitic because it uses this anti-Semitic tropes that have been used to um, attack Jews for hundreds of years. So what would you say if I told you that all of those tropes are actually now neatly packaged in one pedagogy or one curriculum that the most populous state in the country has now made mandatory for high school graduation. Like what would be your your say in how to address that? Well, perhaps we need to, I mean, first of all, if that is in fact what they're doing, all of these tropes, then we need to, uh, I mean, I'm sure, I know that there are people who've analyzed it, but you know, maybe I should take a look at it and, and, and analyze. I mean, I've, I've done the analysis of this kind of rhetoric. You know, it's directly related to the protocols of the elders of Zion, you know, to, and the protocols of the elders of Zion, you know, for your listeners who don't know, I mean, they were really, to, to borrow a phrase from a title of a well-known book by the British historian, Norman Kahn, I mean, they were the warrant for genocide, you know, in, for the Nazis, the Nazis took them on. I mean, first of all, they were um, a warrant for pogroms against the Jews. And then the Nazis took them on among other things. And, you know, then then we know what happened as a result. So in in the, in essence, the Soviets, Soviet the ideologues who produced all of this anti-Zionist language that the left is using today, they were using essentially the same the same language from the protocols. They just turned it into a language that would be acceptable to the left because the left can't, you know, the left can't um, accuse Jews. It can't say, well, Jews are horrible and sinister, but it can say Zionists are horrible and sinister. And so they repackage it in those terms. And the thing to understand also is that, you know, once the USSR fell apart, all of this language and all of this literature, which, you know, was directed to the left, was adopted by the Russian far right. So the Russian neo-Nazis and the Russian fascists, neo-fascist you know, extremists, they use the same language about international Zionism as the most dangerous force in the world, completely meeting the far left you know, in terms of this language. So um, I think we, we really have to understand that it's not hypothetical. It's already well understood how this kind of rhetoric um, is dangerous. You know, it's anti-Semitic. It radicalizes people into anti-Semitism. It, it reinforces the anti-Semitism that's already there. And it's it walks hand in hand with far-right anti-Semitism. So I think it's extraordinarily dangerous. You know, and one more thing about the Protocols of the Adults of Zion is that they also, they are referenced in the Hamas charter. So Hamas uses the protocols to justify the genocide of Israelis, Israeli Jews, and Jews everywhere. So if if that's not enough of a warning, then I don't know what else can be. 
So, I mean, that that's a bit, I think, of what we're facing is what's happened now is all of the tropes that are from, you know, the protocols um, of the elders of Zion about Jews controlling everything or being insidious or being, you know, a poison to a country or a culture that's been repackaged. And I've, I've said for a number of years that ethnic studies is the Trojan horse to institutionalize anti-Semitism. And I think we're kind of seeing the results of that at least some of the ideology already having been normalized and being accepted. And an example is there are lessons on the on um, counter narratives and dominant and counter narratives. And what's been presented in black and white is that the dominant narrative is the Zionist narrative and the counter narrative is everybody else on the side of good. And so you have to deconstruct and tear down, you know, the Zionist dominant narrative because it seeks to do all of the things that that we usually associate, at least in America, with far right anti-Semitism as far as Jewish control over all of these things. And the examples given are actually media, which anyone who knows anything about anti-Semitism knows that it's a common trope to say that Jews control the media. So it's teaching kids that if you hear this from the media, and it's not painting Zionists or Israel or Jews in a negative light as an oppressive force, then don't believe it because it's a dominant narrative trying to trick you. And that's being taught in classrooms right now. And that's just terrifying. That's just terrifying. And in a way, it perhaps helps explain this this shocking support for Hamas that we have seen in the wake of October 7th. I mean, I, you know, I think in a way what happened on October 7th is perhaps our opening to create some change because this is this is the result that we're seeing. It's it's a completely predictable result in many ways, right? But I think for many people who are not aware of this, of this, of the of what is being put in young people's heads. You know, I think a lot of people are really shocked and and just don't uh, don't understand. So I think we need to be making connections with that. We need to be showing that this is what what our children are being taught. Now the question is how to defeat it and how to what you know. It's incomprehensible to me why it's been so hard to defeat. Um, is that because people don't understand the danger and so are not willing to come out and fight it, or what is it? I mean, I think it's partially that. I think it's partially that there are some true believers there. I think that if we have a culture that has accepted the, the ideology behind it, it kind of makes it hard to defeat. Because in the, some of these lessons, Hamas is also just presented as a freedom-fighting political organization, not as a terrorist organization. But if one accepts the ideology that there is the oppressor versus oppressed binary, and the oppressed people are justified in in anything they do to kind of throw off the shackles of oppression if that's accepted then it makes sense that that we have kids i mean from kids to, to older people but that we have kids that are siding with not only hamas now we've seen with osama bin laden right right and that's the exactly. craziest part i mean and, and we we even before october 7th we were talking about this i mean what one of the big things in this curricula is instead of talking about revolutionaries like the Fortin family that you know I mentioned earlier or Martin Luther King, they're talking their their ideas of revolution that they are supporting now Osama bin Laden, which I, I can't even wrap my brain around that. But Mao Zedong, uh, Pol Pot, you know uh, Che Guevara. So this is how they. I, I mean, it's this kind of slow roll, like it's a slow march of the institutions, but it's cotton hold now. And it's the language, it's the language, it's the tropes that seem so banal, so, you know, I mean, the, the, they don't, the, you know, it doesn't mean much, you know, it's just a little like child's, you know, ditty or something like that. Um, so when you slowly start to uphold people like the, the Mao Zedongs and the Che Guevara, and then you add these like very catchy little tropes in there, I think a lot of people, and and, and Brandy and I had this conversation, I mean, I didn't even really understand from um, the river to the sea until it was explained to me. I mean, that is, uh, that's genocide, right? right? But I mean, if you don't know these things, if these are, and add to it, if you are four years old, <laughs> I mean, I used to do hopscotch to, you know, kill a commie for your mommy because it rhymed, you know? I mean, it's just, it, it, it's, it's. Yeah. It's frightening. Well, no, it is. It really is, you know? And the thing about it is that, you know, when I always, when I give lectures about Soviet anti-Zionist, anti-Israel propaganda, 
you know, I always say that the the reason it matters is that it shows you beyond any doubt, beyond any questions, that when you introduce the anti-Zionist language into a society and it becomes widespread and widely adopted, Jews are going to suffer. It's like it's not even... Uh, an abstract, it's not what if, you know, it's completely, we, it's documented in history. And I think that's why those of us who know this history, we just, we, we're just freaked out by what we see, you know, but it's, as you say, you know, it's so hard to, uh, if you don't have a background in particular history, then it's hard to communicate it to people. And, you know, the one of the obstacles we face is that I think as part of this whole shift, cultural shift that we've seen in our educational institutions, is that uh, the history of the Soviet Union is not taught at all, and the history of communism is not taught at all. And, right, and it's, uh, you know, uh, that's, I mean, that's just a major blind spot for our children. It's as though, I mean, I personally feel really, um, I mean, it's, it's like there were, tens of millions of victims of communism. I mean, some people would say a hundred million, you know, it's it's hard to even calculate. We don't know. We don't really know actually how many were murdered in the repression. So in Stalin's repressions, you know, but it's, it's tens of millions. And so we have just skipped over all of their stories, right? Like we, we only talk about Nazi Germany, but there was the other side, you know, and, and, you know, on social media, I hear all the time, I see people come to me and they say, well, the Soviet Union was great, you know, it defeated the Nazis. And it's just such a narrow view and it's such just a tiny sliver, you know, that's all they know. Um, and I think it's a big mistake. You know, if I were in charge, if there were such a thing as some kind of a unified curriculum in the, in the United States and that I, I were in charge of it, I would be proposing that we introduce the teaching of the Soviet Union, you know, and Soviet communism. Uh, and it doesn't have to, like, if, you know, people would say, well, you're being such a McCarthyist, you know, it's like, you know, you're trying to condemn communists. Well, you know, first of all, communists actually have created a lot of uh, just just uh, death and destruction. So that needs to be faced. But also, frankly, you know, if you just tell the story well, in neutral terms, it should be clear to everyone uh, just what a horrible, a horrible um, experiment on hundreds of millions of people it was. Um, so uh, that's a big missing link. I think if people had a little bit of a background in that, it would be perhaps easier for them to understand the things that we're talking about now. But that, I don't know how one changes that. I don't know how one introduces something like that in, into curricula. We're working on it. <laughs> very actively. I, I think my my um, concern isn't as much that it's not being taught it's that where it is being taught it's being glorified so there are courses in in um, schools of education that are teaching to use Cuba as a model because oh, of the like literacy rate but to use Cuba today as a model for for education and and teaching um, with no mention of the repression that people faced there. Just let's skip over that part and yeah. talk about only the shiny part and pretend that that's representative of the, the whole. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the thing that I encounter also is there are all these false equivalences, you know, so like I would put on Twitter something, you know, there was a period when I tweeted quite a bit about, you know, like, Stalin's repressions, and people would tell me, oh, you should, you should see the American penitentiary system. And I would be genuinely stumped. I'm like, you really, in fact, believe that these are equivalent? I mean, it's just extraordinary to me. You know, and then like another socialist, the book I read, you know, and she talks about how well, socialism has been so denigrated, you know, and anytime you say socialism, people say Stalin's repressions, you know, and, and like Ukrainian hunger, and let's sort of get past it. And let's actually see how, what about all the good things that socialism has done. And I'm like, well, you, you just skipped over the deaths of like tens of millions of people. So how can you skip about that? How can you judge 
socialism, you know, the Soviet version of socialism, separately from that particular outcome. I mean, it would be like looking at Nazi Germany and saying, well, ignore the six million Jews and that were murdered and ignore all of the other millions of people who died as a result of the Nazi war machine. Let's ignore that. Let's look at what they created for the German economy so, so that maybe it can be an example for us, right? Maybe that system, you know, ignore the deaths, maybe the system still has some good ideas. I mean, I think that today, nobody who wants to keep their job or have credibility would say something like that. And yet, somehow they think they can say it about, you know, this Soviet-style socialism. It's, I find it incredible. Well, then we face that criticism too, like you all, you're against history and that's the farthest thing from the truth. I mean, we want to teach the whole history, not just the shiny bits and not just the ugly bits. And it's either one or the other, you know, teach only shiny, yeah. shiny communism or teach only ugly slavery. There's no in between. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's exactly, and especially when you do it this way, then it's no wonder that the kids who come out of schools and colleges, that they're sort of completely demoralized with regards to their own country, right? Because that's how it's been presented to them. And no, it's it's terrible. So, so you know, I'm so glad that uh, two of you, the two of you are working on it because if you're working on it, then it can be changed, I think. <laughs> Thank you, not just us. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah, well, and you know, the, the liberated ethnic studies people, you know, I've my latest article, uh, or one of my latest articles was about this Institute for the Critical Study of Zionism that opened in um in the in uh, UC Santa Cruz, I think. You know, and they have at least one prominent person who is involved in uh in the liberated ethnic studies and curriculum development in California. You know, and so I can, and, and I, I listened to an interview with her and she was so, um, uh, that she was so, uh, uh, like, uh, just uh, demonized, she spoke in such demonizing terms about Zionism. So, you know, so there is, there's very much like this joint um, perspective on the world. So I think they need to be, these two things need to be viewed together. I agree. I think they're so they're more closely connected than um, a lot of people first assumed and were, were you know noticed. Yeah, absolutely. Brandy, that might be a discussion since I know you're involved with that for another podcast because that's really fascinating as well. Isabel, thank you so much. I mean, I've, we've been like waiting to get your download of of this history that. Like you said, I, we're, we're just not even teaching it. So to the extent that you informed us in this podcast and our listeners, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, to be continued. To be continued for sure. Mm -hmm.